We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter number 5 today, 2 Samuel and chapter number 5. I'd like to ask you to find your place there. And then when you found uh, found it, 2 Samuel number 5, if you're able to stand easily, I'll invite you to stand today as we get ready to read the Word of God. And I'm going to start in verse 6 and read down to verse uh, 16 this morning. 2 Samuel Chapter number 5, starting in verse 6 and then reading down to verse 16. The Bible says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites and the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Sion, the same as the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be captain and uh, he shall be chief and captain. I'm going to stop right there because it's not part of the message except for I just think it ought to be addressed. Someone's going to think this. That sounds so cruel that the lame and the blind are hated by David. But what you, here's what happens in that passage. David is about to attack the city. Uh, it's Jerusalem. It's called the, the Jebus at that time. It's a place where the Jebusites live there. And David's getting ready to ta- attack it. And the place is a fortress. It's a stronghold. It is a difficult place to defeat. In fact, the Jews have tried twice before this and have not succeeded in taking the whole city. And um, so the Jebusites say, our blind and lame could beat you. And David says, well, all of you are helpless. He uses the phrase blind and lame. You are helpless in the presence of our God. That's what's happened in this passage. It isn't that he's hating handicapped people. But this is, they say, you guys are, you Jews, you're so weak and so incapable and we are so powerful that our blind and lame could whoop you. And he says, well... Every one of you are like blind and lame in the sight of God because of the power he's going to give us. This is a place that he has given to us. Anyway, that's what's going on in the passage. So let's go on again. Wherefore, I'm starting in verse 8. I'll just go ahead and read all of verse 8. David said on that day, whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore, they said the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo and inward. And David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Verse 11, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David and house. Verse 12, And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and they had exalted his kingdom uh, for uh, his exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. And these be the names of those that were born unto him in Jerusalem: Shamua and Shobab and Nathan and Solomon and Ibhar, also and Elishua and Napheg and Japhia and Elishama and Eliada and Eliphalet. Start with one, uh, with another passage out of the book of Psalms and verse uh, 40, chapter 40 and verse 1, where David says these words. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard me. And I don't want you to, and heard my cry. And I don't want you to get the impression that David wrote Psalm 40 um, in conjunction with what happens in second, in second Samuel chapter number 5. But I am reminded of what he says. I waited patiently for the Lord and... And God heard my cry. He answered my prayer. 
I waited and God came through. I waited on God instead of trying to take this thing on my, on my, on, on my own. And instead of trying to get this thing that God has promised in my own power and in my own flesh and in my own time, I waited on God and in God's time, God heard my cry. God answered my prayer and God met the need and he kept the promise that he had made for me. And so something like 14 years after David has been, had been anointed to be king of Israel, God finally, 14 years later, fulfilled his word and David is the king, not just of a ragtag group of dreamers of 400 to 500 or 600, um, you know, people who are in debt and in distress and discontent, uh, not just the king of that little handful of people. He's not just now the king of uh, one tribe of, of, of Judah, of, of Israel, the people of Judah, the tribe of Judah, of which he is a part. Uh, now, at this point, 14 years after he's been, um, uh, after he had been anointed to be king of Israel, God now allows him to be the king of all of Israel, all of the children of the living God. And it's interesting, you know, you think about that. So God makes this promise to you. If God were to make it a promise to you and you go through 14 years really suffering until God, it's not like, you know, David, you know, God says, I'm going to give you this someday. Just hang on tight. Uh, I'm going to make life good until then. Life's going to be bearable. It's not going to be a problem for you. I'm not going to, I'm, this is my promise to you and you'll get it. But, and, and, and you're going to get that someday in the future. But until then, I'm going to kind of take care of you. It isn't like that. God makes a promise to David that he's going to be king, anointed king of Israel. But instead of it being kind of smooth sailing until that day, he goes through 14 years of torment, of torture, of very trying times. And so now all of a sudden he is the king. Uh, now all of a sudden um, he's in, he is the man in charge of all of Israel. What do you do when... You know, you've waited this long for God to give you what he promised and now you have it. And what he has promised is all of this authority, all of this power, the king of all of Israel. What do you do? You've waited so patiently and then now you've received the reward of that patience. And what we find in Second Samuel in chapter number five are the immediate steps, the immediate actions and reactions to those actions that happen when David becomes king of Israel. So I've got four points for you in this message today. The first thing I want to point out to you today, David's first act, as soon as he is anointed to be king of all of Israel, not just the four, the, the people who were in debt and in distress and, in, and discontent, and not just the tribe of Judah, now he is the king of all of Israel. His first, his first action was the conquest of the city of Jerusalem, which I think is an interesting thing, that he would take on that city. You know, you've got all he is the king of all of Israel. That he chose Jerusalem to be his first point of action um, has to give, it, it, it bears some significance on the city. Why the why that city? So we find it in, in uh, chapter five, verses six through nine. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem under the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, "Except that thou take away the blind and lame, thou shalt not come in hither." Thinking David can't come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is the city of David. And David said on that day, "Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites, the lame, the blind, that are hated of David uh, of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain." Wherefore they 
said, The blind, the lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo and inward, uh, one of the, uh, and, and from Milo and inward. So one of the first actions of David, once he's king of the whole nation of Israel, is to take this city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. Um, now, and which, you know, why Jerusalem? Why that city? Uh, well, let's talk just a little bit about the city of Jerusalem a little bit. It, the city of Jerusalem is built, and I'm being, I'm being overly simplistic when I say this, but the city of Jerusalem is built on, uh, on three significant mounts or hills. There's more than that, um, uh, and, and that are, but they don't have to do with the message. So three significant hills. First of all, Jerusalem. There is Mount Moriah. Um, they say when you, when you look at the city of, of Jerusalem, um, it is surrounded by these mountains. And uh, so there is Mount Moriah. That's where Abraham uh, offered Isaac. You'll remember that. Uh, God says to Abraham, I want you to take your, own, your son, your only son, whom thou lovest, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And so Abraham and his son Isaac take off and they go, you know, they, they've got some people with animals and carrying stuff with them, and they get to the to the foot of this mountain, and um, and he leaves behind his uh, his servants, and he uh, Abraham and his son uh, begin to climb up this mountain, and as they're climbing the mountain, Isaac says, "Father, uh, we've got the we've got the we've got the the wood, and we've got the fire. Where is the lamb? Where you know we're going to sacrifice an animal. Where is the lamb? My son, God will provide himself a lamb." And Abraham climbs Mount Moriah with his son Isaac, fully expecting to offer his son as a sacrifice to God, but believing that if he does, God has that God has you know because God has a promise for Isaac that Isaac will be the uh, the the father of many nations and that that Abraham will be the father of many nations through Isaac and so if he dies, God is going to resurrect him. He doesn't know what God is going to do, but God is going to do something. And he gets up there, he prepares to offer his son, and God has a ram caught in the thicket of Mount Moriah. That's where, that's where Mount Moriah, it is there uh, uh, in the city of Jerusalem, the, uh, uh, where the Jebusites are, the place that he's going to take. Then there is this, Mount, there's Mount Moriah, there's Mount Zion, and that's the stronghold of the fort that made it so difficult to take the city, is the Jebusites had built this stronghold uh, on Mount Zion, and, and, um, and, 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 and David conquers that and later names it the city of David. It's a part of Jerusalem. And then there is the Mount of Olives. And you'll know that where Jesus was wont to pray and where the Bible promises that he's going to return one of these days. Of course, there's Mount Calvary and some others, but the, the ones that are significant here for us today, especially Mount Moriah and Mount Zion are especially significant in today's message um, for us to keep in. And it's, it's believed that Jerusalem, uh, oh, a few other things. So it's believed that Jerusalem, we're talking about this, this city that, and that David decides when he is king, this is my first action. I'm going to take this city of Jerusalem. It's believed that Jerusalem, uh, the very first mention of Jerusalem is in the book of Genesis, where after Abraham has taken the five kings, that he is met by the by Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. And it is believed that Salem is this city that is Jerusalem, uh, that we would call Jerusalem, and that the Jebusites were now occupying in the days of King David. And um, so Melchizedek, the, um, the king without father or without mother, without it, 
beginning of days or end of days. Uh, the Bible makes him where I, I personally believe Melchizedek is a pre-incarnated representation of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, and he is the king of Salem. There is something very significant about this city of Jerusalem. And in David's day, as I said, it's known as in uh, his day as Jebus. And it's proven itself to be a very difficult city to conquer uh, for Israel. It, it, it fell, we, you know, remember when Joshua divided the land into lot, uh, into lots? Well, um, Jerusalem, or Jebus, was in the lot that fell to the, to the tribe of Benjamin, but Benjamin hadn't been able to conquer it by themselves, and so they had united with the, with the tribe of Judah in order to try to conquer uh, the city of Jerusalem. So by the time David is, comes along, he is now the king. They do not all possess everything. Um, the, uh, Benjamin has taken part of the city. Judah has taken part of the city. But the main part of the city, the fortress, is still uh, occupied by the Jebusites in, in David's day. And, and by the way, if, if you look in the scriptures, oftentimes you'll see where both Benjamites, Benjaminites and Judah um, both seem to claim Jerusalem. And it's because they cooperated together in order to defeat this city. Why David targeted it first? Um, and specifically why he chose that city first and then chose um, to make it the capital um, of his kingdom is a matter of some speculation. So um, from a pur- purely secular point of view, um, it doesn't seem like the best place for him to set up his kingdom um, because it wasn't in the center of the country you, you think about where you know if you're going to try to rule and it's not like he can fly from places where this isn't in the days where people can go to and fro yeah. traveling is a significant event in those days it's a 75 israel 75 miles wide i think it's the widest part 125 miles long at the longest part it's not a huge place but when you're when you travel everywhere by foot donkey or camel it's not going you don't go there quick and so you would think if you're going to try to rule the entire land, you'd want to be somewhere central, somewhere near good highways, road systems, you know, some way easy to get around. And um, and and Jerusalem just wouldn't have been that. It was uh, kind of on the it wasn't at the low. It wasn't at the farthest south end. Uh, it's not at the farthest south end of Israel, but it's toward the south. Uh, so it's not it, so that, there, you know, there are some outreaches, some parts of Israel that would be very challenging to travel to in day. David's day uh, uh, for David. It would have been very tra- difficult for him to get to them. And then it was also in the mountains, which would make it more of a difficulty to travel. There were roads on either side of the mountains, on either side of the country. There are roads in the plains and uh, on the, uh, by, the, by the ocean or by the Jordan River. There are plains where traveling is much more, uh, 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 which much easier and that you would have thought you could probably pick that. But David picks this city of, 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 of Jerusalem and and uh, from, again, from a secular standpoint, seems like a difficult place. But there's a spiritual draw that you find throughout the Bible to the city of Jerusalem. And I'm convinced that David knew that God had his hand on that particular spot. I'm convinced that I, the man, the Bible said, God says, I'm going to choose me a man after mine own heart. 
I am convinced that the reason why David, as soon as he has the authority to do so, takes the city of Jerusalem is because he knows that God has a plan for that place. The reason he puts his city, the capital city of Israel, in Jerusalem is because God has his hand on that city. God has a plan for that city. God had, as I said, led Abraham there when he offered uh, Isaac to the Lord. And, uh, uh, and it would be in Jerusalem where the threshing floor of Aaron is that David, remember, he has sinned, and because of the sin, uh, God says, I'm going to offer you a choice of three different things. We can, in one of them, God, David says, I'm just going to put my hands, put myself in the hands of the Lord, and God says, all right, there's going to be three days of pestilence, and people die by the thousands, but at the, the last day as the death angel comes near the city of Jerusalem, David can see the death angel coming, and David comes out, and the death angel stops and rests at the, on the threshing floor of, of Arona, who is at the out on Mount Moriah, and David comes out. He buys that that threshing floor, buys the cattle, the oxen, and the and the and the equipment from uh, uh, from uh, the threshing floor. Buys it all, and that's where um, um, Solomon later on builds the temple. Is on that threshing floor where God stopped the plague. It's a very important site. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 5, God told the Jews, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall you seek, and hither shalt thou come. God says, I have a place. And when I point out that place, that's where you're going to want to come. You look for that place. He says, the place that I appoint. You seek it out and you gather there. I want you to go to that place. David wasn't looking. So when David begins to look for that place that's going to be the capital of his kingdom, he's not looking for the most convenient place. He's not looking for the most politically or militarily important place. He's he's not looking for the most popular place. He is looking for the place that God would choose. And that place we know was Jerusalem. Psalm 122 and verse 6, the Bible says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. God had his hand, has his hand on that place. I don't believe, make an application for us today. We're looking for how can we use David, a man after God's own heart. How can we use his example to help us to have a heart for God? I don't believe it's any stretch at all to point out the importance of finding of you and I finding the place that God chooses for us to worship today. The place that God chooses. And God says, I'm going to put my hand right there. That's where I'm going to bless. And you want to seek that place. And you want to gather together into that place. It's that place that I'm going to bless you. And it's that place that I am going to prosper you. And it's that place where I'm going to direct you. It's that place you want to come to worship. I don't believe it is any way inappropriate for me to say that we ought to be looking for a place like that. And that in the New Testament, that place is a Local, independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, and may I say today at Bible Baptist Church, Baptist Church. 
That is the place that God has chosen. And that is the place that God has his hand. And that is the place that God wants to bless today. Once, once we are saved as children, once we are saved, the very first thing a child of God ought to do once he is saved is to discover that church that God has fitted him to be a part of and then unite together with that church. That's what we ought to do. As soon as we're saved, we ought to say, now there is a place we ought to seek out that place that God has for us and every one of us are, are, are created or fitted or gifted to fit into a particular church and we need to find that church, that church and once we find it, we need to attach ourselves to it and cling to it tenaciously. I, by the way, I didn't mean to say that it would be an easy thing to do. Conquering Jerusalem from the Jebusites was not an easy thing to do. There would, if David was looking for an easy city to conquer for his capital, there would have been better places. Jerusalem has been attempt, they have attempted to defeat the place twice already. And haven't been, even combined together, the two tribes hadn't been able to win the whole thing. What David says, let me, I just, here's what I think God wants us to do. He wants us to pick the diff, most challenging, most difficult city in the place and whip it first. David's not looking for that easy place. He's looking for that place that God has picked. And, and I want you to know, I'm, God has a place for you in a local church. And I'm not going to, I don't want you to say, I don't want to make it sound like if you'll find that church and join that church, well, your life is going to be easy then. They're going to, you know, there are going to be a lot of things that will try to drive you away from, a, from the local church that you ought to be a part of. And there will be inconveniences and difficulties in being faithful to that church that God wants you to be a part of. Of. And uh, and sometimes uh, it'll seem like other things are more important to you than that church that God wants you to be a part of us. But all of and here's it, all of us who are firmly established in the membership of a church and faithful in attending that church every service can tell you it's a battle, especially early on, especially when you first when you first discover this. This is the thing God wants of his children to gather to unite, to cooperate in one body and to, to commit, to accomplish the, the great commission. This is the thing God wants. And once you realize that and say, here's the place and, um, and, and here's the expectation. Now all of a sudden you're going to just find everything under the sun happens to try to keep you out of that. Do you, and there are just those kinds of things. Friends call, you know, you're stepping out the door. You're getting ready. Now in those days we didn't have cell phones. So some of you will not be able to relate to what it's like when you, when, with landline, but to, you know when your phone isn't in your pocket. But in those days, the, there was a phone that was actually mounted on the wall or sitting on a cabinet and uh, attached to the house by way of wire. And um, and you'd be you'd be getting ready to walk out. We'd be getting ready to walk out the house. You'd, you'd put the key in the door, lock just as you start to turn the deadbolt, and this phone rings. And just like the phone that's in your pocket, when it rings, it's saying, "Answer me now, now. Answer me. Nothing is more important than me. Answer me now." And uh, so everything in you wants to. Say I'm on, on my way to church, and I need, and the deadbolt is already closed, but that phone is ringing. They may not call back. Whoever it is, if they were calling me right now, they must know it. They must be very important, and it has to be an incredibly important call. And um, and uh, you know, and so everything in you says that phone is ringing. I have to answer it. As you're walking out of the church, walking out the door to go to church, and we would have to, we had to learn to say it doesn't matter who is calling us at. 
15 minutes to 10 on a Sunday. If they want to talk to us, they can call us back later. By the way, it's the same thing's true with your cell phone. If someone want, calls you in the middle of church, if they want to talk to you, they can call you back later. You don't have to walk out of the room. Hello? You don't have to do that. I know that the telephone tells you you have to do that. But you don't. It's a, that is a preconditioned response. It's like the dog, you know, the dog, drip, 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 and the bell rings and I want the water. And that, it's like you're like Pavlov's, Pavlov's dog. You've been trained, conditioned that when this phone rings, answer the phone. Answer the phone. Answer. It's, it's hap- I mean, ever since you were born, you've been listening to these things ring. And, and, and you've watched everyone around you. As soon as they ring, they all go like this. And so you just have, by the time you're old enough to have one of these, it's already in you to go like this and answer the phone. Answer the hello. So I'll just get off that. All right. So it's not, I mean, it is not easy at first, but I mean, it is a huge lifestyle, change of lifestyle to come to the place where you go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday night. No ifs, ands, buts or, uh, or questions about it. That's just what we, what you do. You just, if Sunday church is Sunday morning, I'm in church on Sunday morning and church is Sunday night. I'm on church. I'm in church on Sunday night and church is Wednesday night. I'm in church on Wednesday night. And if church is just called for a special meeting, a revival meeting, I'm going to be in church for every one of those. It, I mean, that is a huge change in lifestyle. I've told you the story about my preacher friend, hadn't I? An evangelist friend of mine. He got mad because he didn't have a place to preach one Sunday. And he said, well, if God isn't going to give me a place to preach, I'm not going to church. I'm a preacher. And if God won't give me a place to preach, I'm not going to church. I'm only going to church if I have a place to preach. And so he says to the wife and the kids, we're staying home today. We're not going to church. You can stay sleep in if you want to. We're going to stay. But they couldn't sleep in because... They were used to getting up, so they get ready for church. And so they sat around their pajamas, but they weren't used to being in their pajamas, so they just went ahead and got dressed. And so they're sitting there, and there isn't anything. They're not used to watching anything on television on Sunday morning. And so um, after a little bit, he just said, ah, let's go to church. It's because they didn't know what to do with themselves. They were so used to going to church on Sunday. that that's a, But that doesn't happen quickly. It takes time to develop. It takes time for that kind of lifestyle to win the battles that that have to be won in order to come to the place where you're in church when the doors of the church are unlocked. That takes a while to get that. Once you've won that war, it does get easier, but you still have minor skirmishes from here on. Uh, you know, here uh, here and there, you still have uh, minor skir- skir- uh, skirmishes. But uh, but most of us most of us who have won that war will tell you that we couldn't imagine not being faithful to church. I mean, we just wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. We couldn't imagine not being faithful to church. So David, the first thing he does is he conquers Jerusalem. um, And what he says, it says the stronghold of Zion first, and then later the rest of the city is what he does there. He gets the stronghold of Zion, names it the city of David, and then he he defeats the rest of the city um, as a matter of, uh, you know, because you don't just win it all at once. You've got to take it piece by piece. So once that happened, once he's got the city of Jerusalem, the Bible goes on from there to present to us two benefits that immediately uh, happened for David because he won this battle. I want you to, as I get ready to go into these next two points, I need you to try to help. I need to help you to uh, see where I'm at. I'm saying that for us, the conquest of Jerusalem is membership, faithful, it's membership and faithful attendance in the church that God has placed us. Okay, there are benefits to that membership. 
And we're going to see them pictured in the benefits that David experiences when he wins, when he defeats Jerusalem, when he conquers Jerusalem. So the first thing that happens, the Bible tells us he conquers this city, gets to the city of Zion, the, 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 the Mount Zion first, and the city calls it the city of David. And then he calls, uh, you know, whoever, it's Joab is the guy, he says, whoever goes up to the gutters and conquers the rest of the city, he'll be the chief and the cap- captain. That's Joab who wins that, uh, wins the rest of the city for David and his army. And then as soon, as soon as that happens, as soon as they have the city, the Bible says that David now gets a new friend. Or at least it sounds like it's a new friend the way it's written. And this is 2 Samuel 5 and verse 11. Immediately, he's got the city, and then verse 11, and Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, cedar trees, carpenters, and masons, and they built David an house. It's an interesting thing. So he goes, he wins the city, and as soon as he wins this city, this other king helps him build a house in his city. He just won. One of my one of my commentaries um, says that this is that that um, this 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 first this is the first mention of King Hiram, and that it is it, it, he they use the phrase somewhat abrupt, and it kind of is if you think about you not heard about him before David wins the city and now all of a sudden King Hiram is 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 his friend bringing bringing timber and helping him build uh, build this build this house and and so this commentary says that this first mention of Hiram is somewhat abrupt and then the commentary suggests that there was some probably some sort of relationship between Hiram and David before this time we don't know that but somehow um, but maybe some kind of relationship before this time the and the relationship so. The Bible says that David wins the city of Jerusalem. Immediately, he develops this friendship with, with Hiram, the king of Tyre, who helps him to build his house in his capital city. And then we know from reading on in the scriptures, we, also, we know that this relationship, this friendship, extends from not only to David when he's king, but extends past David to his son Solomon. So Hiram, the king of Tyre, helped David to build his house. David's not allowed to build the temple. He wants to, but God won't let David build the temple. says that instead, that's going to come, that's going to fall to your son, the next king, to build the, the temple that will be, that where I'll be worshipped. And it's so Hiram helps David build his house. And then Hiram helps Solomon, David's son, build the temple. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1, it um, says, Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent his servants unto Solomon, for he had heard that he had anointed him, that, that they had anointed him king in the room of his father. And then it says this, for Hiram was ever a lover of David. What an interesting phrase. Ever a lover of David. It's worth us thinking about just a little bit. The kind of friend who is ever a lover of you. Um, Can I tell you that if you've got a friend who's a friend with you one day and not a friend of you another day, he never was your friend. A friend is your friend. A friend is your friend when you make mistakes. A friend is your friend when you're in need. A friend is your friend when you can help him and when he has to help you. A friend is your friend. A friend is the kind of person who is there to cheer you on when things are going right. A friend is the kind of person who will come up and look you in the eyeballs and say, you need to change that. That's a friend. Hiram is ever a lover of David, the Bible says. And the word ever there, it means um, it means from sunrise to sunset. Um, it, um, look at just the concordance, this dictionary, the Hebrew dictionary, um, the word ever. All, whole, 
or by implication, from sunrise to sunset. Hiram. He's, it's a friendship that never ended. It is a friendship that, um, uh, that extended to be a help of David. It is a friendship that not only was he a friend of David, he became a friend of David's son. It was a friendship that even extended past a period of disagreement. So, uh, and we're not, I, this isn't part of the message, so I'm just going to barely point this out. But, um, it isn't, so he's, Hiram is David's friend in David's life. Hiram is Solomon's friend when Solomon becomes king. But there comes a point where Solomon and Hiram have a disagreement agreement. Um, and we're not going to go through the story, but Solomon pays Hiram, gives uh, Hiram is helping Solomon build the temple. And uh, in exchange for helping him build the temple, Solomon gives to Hiram, uh, I think it's 20 cities. And Hiram says, what are these? I mean, if you're going to give me a gift, give me something that's worth something. It's, you know, I mean, there is a disagreement. Uh, you know, they have a disagreement, and yet, even though there is a disagreement, they they still remain friends. They continue their um, their their activities together, their work together, their cooperation together. They they stay friends, and and I just want to tell you. Um, it has been my my experience as a Christian and as a member of a local independent Baptist church for the last um, thirty. Eight years or something like that, that uh, we've been married almost 38 years and I became a Christian, started going to church just a little bit before we got married. It has been my experience since then, since, since faithfully uniting with the local church that I have, I've developed now some, uh, I have developed some uh, friendships that some that have lasted uh, all of my life and some that have become um, great friends. Some of my friends have become friends of my children now and they are my friends and they have been a help and a blessing to me, but now they they have extended that friendship to Bohannon and to Caleb, and they are as good of friends, in fact, I always joke around with Dave Brown, Dave Brown is about as good a friend as pastor, as good a friend as I've got, uh, Dave Brown and Yakima but if I want to talk to Brother Brown I, will, I ask Caleb to call him because Brother Brown will answer the phone for Caleb he won't answer the phone for me <laughs> I'm just one of his preacher friends Caleb though, Caleb will you call Brother Brown, Brother Brown, yeah I'm right here. Just like that. So he's my friend and he's my son's friend and he's Bohannon's friend as well. And um, um, I have some friends, friendships since I've become uh, since I've become a Christian and got hooked up in local united with the local church. I have some friendships that have withstood some terrible disagreement. Um, I have a preacher friend. I won't give his name. I have a preacher friend that. um he and I had a disagreement about a missionary and when I was still pastoring in the state of Oregon. And uh, there was a guy who had pastored in the state of Oregon. Uh, and he had, um, he had resigned his church. There was a very little church. And uh, no, in fact, it had come to a place there were no people in the church anymore. It had a little building that was uh, the city had threatened to be condemned. And, and this guy comes to me and says, I, God, I believe, is calling me to be a missionary. Uh, and, um, and I'd like to be sent out of your church. And, um, and, and what I'd like to to do is um, is I'd like to sell that property to help me to buy a vehicle that I can drive uh, as I'm out on deputation. And the only thing that was stood in the way of this was another pastor in, that was in a neighboring ta- town to that one. So I called the guy up and he says, yeah, that makes sense to me. I understand. I'll be fine. 
He agreed that, that this would be a reasonable thing to do. And so uh, he, the guy sold the property, he bought the van, and, um, and then we went to, the, to Springfield, Missouri, so that he had to go through a process of being approved as a missionary um, through the Baptist Bible Fellowship. And uh, so the morning that, and I was supposed to, rec- I was the one, he's coming out of my church, so I went to Springfield, Missouri, so that I could recommend him to the pastors there as a, as a, as a new missionary. And I got there to Springfield, and this preacher friend who had told me that it was okay for him sell the property, came up to me the day that we're going to have the meeting and said, um, I've changed my mind. I'm going to oppose this publicly at the meeting. And I put together a group of friends to help me oppose it. He did it in a way where I had no time to get people who supported what we were doing. He had put together a team to disagree with what we were doing and had not given me time. And when I got home from that meeting, one of my preacher friends said, we need to go up, we, we need to censure that guy. We need to let him know he's not allowed in our fellowship meetings. We need to, I mean, what he did to you was stinks and we need to, and I said, no, 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 you know. He did what he thought was right. And uh, that preacher and I are very, very good friends to this day. And uh, some of that, you just when you got good friends, it withstands those times. So I don't, I don't want you to think that everything in church has been rosy and sweet for thirty-eight years. I mean, there have been things that have broken our hearts, and you will find that there are times where there is heartbreak. And when you become, when you become a member of an independent, fundamental Bible-believing Baptist church, you get this close to this many people. All of the time, I promise you, some of them are going to say some things, do some things, act some ways that hurt your feelings sometimes. And um, it's just going to happen there. But the benefits outweigh the troubles by far. And so David has this friendship. The second benefit, I think, is, uh, and the benefits become so obvious. The second benefit is the, that the benefits are obvious. The, the benefits are so obvious to King David that he develops this concept that he's blessed of God. Um, look at, um, I've got two verses for you. Second Samuel chapter five and verse 10. David went on and grew great and the Lord God of hosts was with him. So he is being blessed in verse 12. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. He would all of a sudden says, Hmm, I think I'm blessed. God is blessing him so much that he's one day says the thought occurs to him. I think I'm blessed. I don't know if you've ever had that sensation where you where you know, I think a lot of us struggle in our life so much and we and, and we know our failures. We know our faults. We know and all of us have um, things we'd like to accomplish in our lives. Even spiritually, we have things we'd like to accomplish spiritually that things we'd like to have happen to us. Uh, some of us, I think, um, are so busy just living that we do, we really don't even think about whether we're blessed of God or not. We just do what we do and you know, go to church and I do what I'm supposed to do. And I and, and we get into habits and things. But it is an incredible thing. To realize God blesses me. And David comes to that place in his life. God is blessing me. So um, I notice a couple of things that I see in, in these two verses. Um, I'm going to try to take the two, uh, verse 10 and verse 12. And I see something, one thing in verse 10 and another thing in verse 12 I want to point out to you. First of all, in verse 10, there is this fact of God's blessing. David went on and grew great and the Lord God of hosts was with him. That's a fact. God was with him. 
God was blessing him. That's a fact. And may I tell you that the Bible promises as a matter of fact, God is with you and blesses you. If you're a child of God, if you're faithful to God, you're doing what God wants in your life. And, and I'm not saying you have to be perfect at it because no one is. David wasn't either. But a child of God, the Bible promises he is with you and blesses you. It's a matter of fact. In uh, Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 3. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I'll be with thee, and through the rivers, thou shalt not; they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Now, did you notice what God says? He says, wait a minute, here, you're going to pass through the waters, and you're going to go through the rivers, and you're going to walk through the fire. Those things are going to happen to you. But don't fear. I'm with you. They're not going to overflow you. You're not going to get burned up by these, consumed by those things. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Um, so there's an Old Testament promise. God says, you're mine, I've redeemed you. That means saved. I've redeemed you, I've saved you. You are mine, I will be with you through the difficulties of your life. It's a fact. But the promise goes on, of God's promise goes on from the Old Testament into the New Testament. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And listen, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. It's a fact. It's a promise of God. It's a fact. He is with you. Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. It's a fact. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. It is a fact. God's presence and God's blessing on the child of God is a fact. The Bible very clearly teaches that when we're saved, when we're faithful, and even when we're tempted, God is with us and helps us. He blesses us. It's a fact. But notice um, that not only is there this fact of God's presence, but in 2 Samuel 5, there is this perception of God's blessings. In uh, chapter 5, verse 12, David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. So it's one thing to have the Bible promise. It's another thing to believe it, to sense it, and to live it. And may I suggest to you that the difference between the victorious Christian and the one who struggles in their spiritual life is that one knows what the Bible says and the other lives what the Bible says. I don't want to mean I'm not trying to be um, judgmental or to be a, a, accusatory right now, but I but I just this is an absolute truth. Most of us in this room know what the Bible says, but we don't believe it. We don't live it. We know what the Bible says, but we've got all of our exceptions. Why what the Bible says doesn't apply to me. Until we come to the place in our spiritual life where we'll say, this is, this is the teaching of the Bible 
Therefore, this is how I live. This is the teaching of the Bible. Therefore, this is what I believe. This is the teaching of the Bible. Therefore, this is how I perceive my world. Until we come to that place, we're going to struggle. We're going to be miserable. We're going to struggle in our spiritual life until we come to the place where we say, this is the, what the Bible says. Therefore, this is how I respond and behave in my life. We're going to struggle in our lives. It's just, it's just the way it is. For the most part, the difference between um, the one who knows the truth and the one who lives the truth is a matter of faith or acceptance. And every one of us will be best off if we simply just believe the Bible and behave according to what we learn. Now, last thing uh, today, I've got one more point, and and really this is a um, it's not even a point. It's just something I need to add because it's there in the passage, and it happens to be Father's Day. And then the fourth point today is there's this thing about the concubines and his, David's concubines and his children. Look at verses 13 through 16. David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. These be the names of those that were born unto him in Jerusalem. The only I think there's two names here that are significant for us. Nathan and Solomon. And uh, I'm not going to read them again right now, but uh, and and really Nathan and Solomon are the two. These are these are key players in the history of Israel. Nathan and Solomon, the children of David. Um, but here's the, so here's David. He is anointed king of Israel, and after waiting for 14 years, he finally becomes what God has promised him to be. And in now having that place, he does he, he, he realizes what God, the, the authority, he takes the city of Jerusalem, establishes his throne uh, and because of it, he is blessed of God, and he recognizes the blessings of God in his life. He has this good friend uh, that he d- develops this really great relationship with Hiram, and he realizes the blessings of God, and then David does something that happens time and time again in the Bible. Being blessed, he steps into the flesh. Um, you see it happening several times with the kings of Judah, especially in, in the, the southern kingdom of Judah, David's children who follow him in the line. There are several of them are, that are very good kings, and because they are good kings, godly men who tear down the idols and build up the restore worship in the temple, God, because they are obedient to God, God blesses them, and because God blesses them, they, be, they grow in strength and power, and then as soon as they become grow in strength and power, they get lifted up in, in pride and they do the wrong thing. It happens over and over among David's children. And they got it from their dad. And it's his children and his children's children, his grandchildren. So it's talking about his family. They got it from the founder of their family. David was not exempt of the same thing. He um, abused his power and created havoc in his family because of it. He has all this power. He is blessed of God. And what I, what do you want to do with your blessings, David? I know. I'm going to get myself a whole bunch of wives. And otherwise. Now, we're not going to go into detail concerning David and his concubines and all that. That's not important right now. And you know what all that means. But I just want to remind you that God's blessings, God's blessing in your life doesn't give you permission to God, to ignore God's word. So long as you do, so long as you do as the word says, you're going to find that though you still have struggles, 
you have answers to those struggles and God's blessing you. Whether it's through, uh, it, but if whether through um, rebellion or stubbornness or like in the case of David, it's pride. You choose to turn from the word of God. You are going to find your life has calamity. God wants blessings in your life and God, God will never leave you or forsake you. But if you choose to live contrary to God's word and you do what is natural, you're going to find that God has some consequences that are supernatural in your life.